Hello, and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Pi, and today is actually a little bit different than past episodes because we are in fact recording in the same location for once. Very exciting. I'm sure we'll definitely not fight over the laptop or the microphone at all. Certainly not. I'm Lulu, your other host, and we are indeed no longer separated by distance. We are recording this at the same table with the actual real podcast mic in our father's office. So that's a very new, exciting update. Another new, exciting update, since it's been quite a long time since we've recorded and posted an episode, is that both of us have graduated college and we are now like adults or something like it. So that's pretty wild. Anyway, moving away from that, what have you been up to in the, uh, gosh, months since we last recorded and posted an episode, Pi? Oh, you know, aside from graduating college and packing up my dorm and going to your graduation and all that fun stuff, I have also been into a few pieces of media, which I shall now discuss. One is the book Tess of the Road by Rachel Hartman, which I read after I was done with my exam for the year when I kind of wanted to settle down and dig my teeth into a really big, long, interesting book, Which and this absolutely fit the bill for that. Tess of the Road is a road trip novel about a girl called Tess that's set in a vaguely medieval Europe-inspired world that also has a few unexpected things like dragons and the occasional technological invention that did not exist back then. And it's not really a big fancy adventure story of like warring gods or clashing kingdoms or politics or sorcerers. It's more of an episodic story about a young woman coming of age in a world where she has few options and where her family doesn't really support her and where she doesn't feel like she understands what her place in the world is. And so she goes on a road trip to kind of grapple with her past, try to understand who she has been, who she is, and who she wants to be. Despite the fact that it's a book that is really driven more by internal conflict than plot or conflict, I found it to be a really compelling book. It's a really interesting look at the mind of a woman who's trying to come of age and figure out who she wants to be in the world. And it was just really satisfying and the emotional journey was very good. And there's a sequel that I definitely need to read at some point. I also recently read The Adventures of Amina Al-Sarafi by Shannon Trakabarty, which is basically just like a rollicking adventure set in the 12th century Indian Ocean about Amina Al-Sarafi, who was once a famous and feared pirate uh, ruling over a crew of equally famous and feared uh, colorful figures, but has since retired basically to be a peaceful middle-aged mother and kind of evade the nasty ending of her adventures and some enemies who may or may not want to find her. She's kind of settled down and she's more interested in providing for her family and raising her daughter. But when she gets the opportunity to get the gang back together for one last heist that promises to play to pay lots of money and definitely set her up for life, she can't resist and things, of course, go terribly wrong almost immediately. There are magical artifacts and chaos demons and extremely hateable villains and a well-researched and compelling picture of the 12th century Indian Ocean. And it was just like a really enjoyable and fun book that was set in a part of the world that I haven't really read much about. And finally, I also recently watched the movie Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, and as a big D&D fan, this movie was extremely fun. It's just basically a big action blockbuster about a bunch of characters, also coincidentally on a heist, and I found it very satisfying and funny, and it was very obviously rooted in Dungeons and Dragons, which is something that I have a great love for, so it was fun to be like, so it was fun to see a big blockbuster action movie along with people that I played D&D with and kind of see all the jokes and just have a fun time watching a plucky band of people perform a heist while tense music plays. And it was just, you know, a good time overall. And that is what I've been up to recently. How about you? I have been up to 
quite a lot since we last recorded, but I won't list everything that I've read or watched because that would basically be an entire episode in its own. One thing that I really loved and want to give a shout out to though is the novel Little Blue Encyclopedia for Vivian by Hazel Jane Plante. It's a very unusual and kind of experimental novel. It's essentially about a queer trans woman from Canada who is grieving her best friend slash kind of unrequited love, a straight trans woman. And to kind of work through her grief for her best friend, she begins writing a sort of encyclopedic guide to this cult classic TV show they're both obsessed with called Little Blue. So the entire novel is basically told in dictionary entries, but it sort of pieces together both the story and characters of the TV show she was obsessed with and also the friendship with her deceased friend. It's a really interesting, quirky, sad, emotional novel that's about kind of about grief, the power of pop culture, the importance of queer community. It's really weird and interesting and experimental, but has like such a strong emotional punch at the heart of it. I loved it. I'd recommend it to like, honestly, anyone. It is sort of beyond genres and form and it's just kind of its own unusual little thing, but I loved it. It was very interesting and I'm excited to read more from that author. I also just finished reading The Thousand Eyes by A.K. Larkwood. It's the sequel to The Unspoken Name, which is a book that we did an episode on uh, quite a while ago. So it did take me a while to get around to reading the sequel, but it was well-deserved. It was fantastic. The series is about a young girl who is raised to be kind of a human sacrifice as part of this death cult devoted to a god that lives in a mountain. It's a fantasy series, so there is a real god. And when she runs away from the death cult, there are real consequences because it turns out that gods have long memories and even longer influences. And it's just a fantastic story. It's kind of about power and loyalty, the sacrifices people make for each other and for their ambition. But also it's just really fun. There's big gods and snake monsters and wizards and also like some really great humor. But just like at the heart of it, A.K. Larkin was just so good at taking characters and making them feel real and funny and flawed and like people you care about, even though they're in these giant epic situations of like warring gods and wizards and sorcerers. So fantastic book. Um, great follow-up to a book that I really loved. So I was very excited to finally get to that and learn that my wait <laughs> had not been in vain. It was so good. However, as much as Lulu loves The Thousand Eyes, we are not here to talk about that yet. Although, who knows, we may do an episode on it someday. We are in fact here specifically to discuss three books that take place in a time period and location that we find really interesting, which is post-Rome Britain. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the concept of post-Rome Britain, basically this is the period after the Roman Empire, which had occupied Britain for several hundred years, withdrew around 400 AD and basically left this huge power vacuum. They had been basically the main power in at least southern England for quite some time. And eventually they were like, you know what, we got our own problems in the Mediterranean, we can't afford to hang around here, and they just kind of left. And there was just basically a big gap and everyone was like, who's going to be in charge? What are we supposed to do? What's going on now? Uh, which kind of led to a period of history that we know very little about. It's very fragmentary. There aren't a lot of like actual primary sources from this time period. There's a lot of cultural clashes between groups such as the Anglos and the Saxons. But post-Rome Britain is basically known for birthing the myth of King Arthur, which first originated in this time period. And so this is something that we're both really fascinated by. Yeah, when I was in high school, and I may have mentioned this in previous episodes, like I think our episode on Legend Board by Tracy Dion. Anyway, when I was in high school, I became really fascinated by the possible historical origins of King Arthur. And um, he became like really popular as kind of a mythical figure actually in the Tudor era. But if there was like a real King Arthur who kind of united Britain as this powerful king or warlord, it was during this time period. 
And I find it super interesting, so I always tend to seek out fiction that is set in during that time period or King Arthur fiction that really draws on the historical origins. So we're going to be talking about three books that are set in post-Rome Britain. Not all of them are Arthurian, but some of them kind of are fantasy and folklore based. The first one is Dark Earth by Rebecca Stott. The second one is Here Lies Arthur by Philip Reeve. And the third one is Sister Song by Lucy Holland. In some ways, they're all pretty different novels. They're concerned with kind of different stories and different types of people living in this history past, but they're all really interesting to sort of think about each other in conversation, how the authors imagine a time period that in some ways is more mythical than historical because we know so little about it. And also, interestingly, all three of them kind of contain like medieval queer narratives, which I think is super interesting and we're going to talk about more. But I think we'll sort of start with talking about each book and then maybe return to talking about them as a collective once we've gone over them. So the first book, like I mentioned, is Dark Earth by Rebecca Stott. It is a historical fiction novel that is set in 6th century Britain. So um, this is, again, like I said, a time period we don't really know much about. The Roman Empire occupied Britain for around 400 years, but it withdrew its imperial staff and armies in about AD 410. And then Londinium, aka London, remained abandoned for 400 years after that, which is crazy to think about. Like, it's sort of just like a hub of England now, but there was a time period when it was just empty because kind of the powers that be that had been keeping it um, full of people and commerce just withdrew. So Dark Earth is set in this time period when there is kind of a power vacuum left after the Romans have left and not a lot of sources. And it's inspired actually by a specific piece of archeology, span which is the brooch of a Saxon woman that was found in an old Roman bath. And it was likely dropped there sometime between AD 450 and AD 550. And essentially the whole novel is kind of extrapolating from that moment being like, who was this Saxon woman? Why was she at a Roman bath? Where did the brooch come from? And Rebecca Stock goes on to kind of imagine this whole world and the characters that populate it based off of this one piece of archeology, span which I find super cool. The title Dark Earth is actually an archeological term. It refers to a layer of undisturbed earth that indicates no human activity in a place for some time period. So for instance, there is dark earth in London for these 400 years when Rome is kind of not there and the local people have found other seats of power. So Dark Earth is a book that follows Blue and Isla, the two daughters of a Saxon blacksmith who is kept imprisoned on an island along with his children so he can forge swords for a local warlord. And when their father dies before finishing his final sword for the commission, Isla finishes it for him, despite the fact that their culture strictly forbids women being taught how to be blacksmiths. And the two of them have to learn how to negotiate with their survival and not give away the fact that Isla has broken this taboo. Basically, they have to escape enslavement by a cruel warlord, then they run away to the ghost city, aka the ruins of Londinium, and find a community there of fellow outcast women who offer them sanctuary. This is historical fiction, but it's also very steeped in superstition and folklore, and it has a very mythological feel, even if no actual magic happens in the story. It's also quite character-driven, so it's about these two sisters who are struggling to survive in a precarious world, driven by power-hungry men who see the two of them as a suspicious threat. Blue and Isla are also descended from two different tribes at this time, so they face a great deal of suspicion because of their mixed heritage. You know, now today there's just kind of like British people, but in this time period there was the Brightons, there was the Saxons, there was all kinds of people, and they really distrusted each other in this time period, were often at war. So these two sisters kind of represent the fact that England has had this complicated history with different groups of people. 
Each of the sisters also has kind of their own specific talent. Issa, like we said, she learned smithcraft from her father, despite the fact that this is forbidden for women at this time period. And Blue, who is your younger sister, is a healer, but she also gets a lot of kind of witchy suspicion from people because she has two different colored eyes. So they're two sisters that survive in a time period where their kind of power and skills bring a lot of distrust to people. And it's kind of a story about how they learn to negotiate this very hostile world without their father as a protective figure. I was really initially drawn to this book because of the post-Rome Britain time period, and it was one of the inspirations for this episode. Like I said, it's just always a time period that I found super interesting. This story is not actually particularly rooted in Arthurian history or fiction. It's kind of imagining the lives of characters unrelated to King Arthur, but it was still really up my alley because I think there's just this really interesting feeling of like crumbling grandeur and like living in the ruins of this once great empire because it really permeates this whole novel the absence of the Roman power. And also I just really enjoyed that like, there's these vibes of like ancient Roman bathhouses that have fallen to ruin, all this old jewelry that has been buried under dirt that characters dig up, temples that are just falling into the marsh because the people who would have normally been there for their upkeep have left. Just like the vibes of them living among the ruins of the great Roman civilization are really interesting because the Romans came and they occupied Britain for a really long time and they were a dominant cultural force in, this, in like the south of Britain. Um, like Roman religion, Roman language, Roman culture, Roman infrastructure. And when they left, obviously they left behind like all of their infrastructure and some of their language, but like there was just kind of this collapse of power. So the book is largely set in the ruins of what would eventually become London, um, kind of among all these falling down Roman buildings, but specifically in this community of women that Isla and Blue find out hiding in London called the Rookery. And I personally really liked that this is a historical fiction book that's imagining both what life was like during a time period we have very little sources on. There are just really not written sources from this time period, like I said. People draw on a lot of archaeology, but also it's a novel that imagines what specifically the lives of women would have been like during this time period, something that we probably have even less sources on. And it doesn't feel like it's kind of anachronistic or just throwing out real history. It's like trying to extrapolate what would have been like to live in this time period and then what would have been like to live in this time period as a woman. So I just love the way that the author like takes real history and archaeology and decides to imagine like the interior lives of characters who are inhabiting a world that feels like very foreign to us. At times it almost felt more like a fantasy novel than a historical fiction novel. But yeah, I just love the way that it is taking like this real time period we know very little about and trying to explore it through these two characters that end up feeling like very real and grounded, even though they live in a time period that is so different from ours. Yeah, I definitely agree. I really enjoy the way that this book does. It kind of feels like something that could have existed, even though we don't know if it could have existed. It feels like the author really sat down and thought like, what would it be like to be a woman living in this world when there's like no centralized power, when people are often like scrabbling to see who's in charge, when women who have power or who don't fit to the societal norms are distrusted. And she ends up creating this really interesting story of these women kind of rallying together and finding a place and a community created out of the ruins of London, which is just really cool. Also, as you said, this is not a King Arthur book, although I did catch exactly one reference to the possible historical King Arthur, which is a mention of a warlord called Arthur rallying troops against the Saxons, which might have been the real inspiration for the King Arthur myth. If he was a real guy, he was probably a warlord fighting the Saxons, but he's not at all important to the book. This is the story of women who have been ignored throughout history, but who definitely did exist and did have lives. And this is kind of what the book is more interested in exploring than the myth of King Arthur. Yeah, if there was a real King Arthur, there was likely some kind of warlord who served as an inspiration. We could talk about this 
for many hours, I'm sure. But essentially, there was a time period during this kind of post-Rome Britain era where um, the Saxons were held off for like a generation or two, possibly by some really competent general warlord who might have been the inspiration for Arthur because he was kind of a rallying figure. And then obviously that has just like snowballed and ballooned into like the giant epic magical once in a future king of Britain type thing. But if there was a real Arthur, he probably was like a warlord who is somewhat successful as kind of staking a claim and fighting off the Saxons for a couple of years. But yeah, there's only like really one mention of him. It's not a novel that is super concerned with like battles even. It's more about kind of everyday life and survival. For instance, like there is a whole scene where the rookery ends up facing the troops of a Saxon warlord, but they kind of resort to like almost like theatrical trickery, kind of like they had big Macbeth witch vibes, basically. It's So even there's, there are like military and political things happening in this book, but it's sort of more about like survival and rebuilding and day-to-day -day life and what it means to carve out a place for yourself in kind of this hostile society, which I found interesting because since this is the time period that King Arthur likely could be pinpointed to as a real figure, a lot of the books from this time period are quite like historically concerned with military and political stuff like Bernard Cornwell type thing but this is a novel that is like a bit quieter and more character focused yeah exactly also it has something Lulu enjoys which black which is blacksmiths yes I am like a big fan of blacksmiths in fantasy fiction because I love when characters in fantasy fiction have like specific jobs and skills there's so many books that are like about kings and princesses that I kind of enjoy reading about people who are like doing things that are hands-on and have jobs. So Isla, the whole book is kind of centered around the fact that she takes over after her father, De Smith, dies kind of in the middle of a commission and she finishes it. Um, and then she has to kind of run away so as not to give away the fact that she just broke this taboo, but she kind of continues working on her smithcraft skills. And I loved seeing that there was a blacksmith in this. Also, another thing with this book that I didn't realize going in, but it's also kind of a story about medieval queer identities and relationships. Isla has a romance with another woman, and I thought it was interesting for the author to imagine like what non-heteronormative um, history in this time period would have looked like, because like I said, we just don't have a lot of sources. Like, I don't really know what gender sexuality reviewed like during this time, but Isla, when she joins the Rickery, she meets another woman and ends up having a romance with her. So I thought that was kind of cool to like imagine queer history in this like very far back time period. It's a really nice romance too. It's kind of about like connecting through teaching someone else uh, knowledge that you have and kind of passing on what you learned from others, which I really like because she teaches her girlfriend how to be a blacksmith. And it was just really enjoyable because uh, I don't think Lulu knew that it was like a queer romance going in. So just kind of like a fun little surprise in there. And it was nice to read about. Also, I like that this book is really interested in also depicting the racial and cultural diversity of historical Britain. For example, as we mentioned, Isla and Blue have a Saxon father, which is basically a Germanic tribe that came from continental Europe to Britain around this time period, and an Ikeni mother, which is the same tribe that Boudicca came from. And so basically they're kind of of mixed heritage and they're not entirely trusted by either the Saxons or the Ikeni, and they have cultural ties and ideas and superstitions that come from both sides of their families. And one of their friends slash allies is Caius, who is descended from African soldiers who served in the Roman, in the Roman army and then stayed in Britain. 
So there's kind of like this overall sense of the great cultural and ethnic groups present in Britain at the time. It was definitely not like one homogenous group where everyone looked the same and behaved the same and had the same background and believed the same things. This was in fact a time period with loads of different groups of people who were all struggling to find some place in the world. And they had definitely not become like the idea of Britain that we have of history. This was like a country with many different groups of people and from many different places. And I feel like this book did a really good job of portraying that. Yeah, I'm a big fan of when historical fiction set in Europe kind of acknowledge the, the like cultural and linguistic and ethnic diversity that has always been present in Europe, rather than just being like, this is Europe, they all speak mostly the same language. This is also really present in fantasy books that are inspired by medieval Europe. I find that oftentimes they're not really drawing on what I find like are the real interesting history of like the different cultural and linguistic groups in England. But um, that's that's a thought for another episode. Anyway, yes, I love that Caius is descended from African soldiers who served in the Roman Empire because it, it's like a real also example of the way that there was this diversity within the Roman Empire and that history is like has always been one of like people going to different places and different people interacting and stuff. And this book is sort of all about that um, in some ways. Also, I just want to geek out about something I find really fun about Romans serving in Britain, which it's my podcast, so I get to geek out about history. Anyway, so Caius <laughs> as a character made me think about the Vindolana tablets for a second because he is um, kind of a remnant of the Roman army that was serving in Britain, and the Vindolana tablets are like a real archaeological artifact left over from a Roman garrison. So I think they're really cool when I'm going to geek out about them and maybe you'll learn a little bit of history from this podcast. So the Vindolana tablets, they were wooden tablets discovered at a Roman fortress and they date to around the first or second century. So sort of contemporaneous with Hadrian's Wall, if you know, like that big wall that covers part of England. Actually not the furthest north wall. People think of it as being the furthest north wall. It wasn't. It was just like a big wall, but it wasn't. Just want to clarify that. Anyway, so um, at the time that the Vindolana tablets were discovered, they were the oldest surviving documents that were written in Britain. And also, they're possibly one of the first times that handwriting that we explicitly know belonged to a woman had ever been preserved, which is certainly, I think, also the first known woman's handwriting in Latin. And it's actually a birthday party invitation. <laughs> And I just think that the Vindolana tablets are really interesting because some of them are things about military conquest, like, oh, we are fighting the local Celtic tribes. This is how they've been doing um, kind of letters about like military movements. And some of them are just really normal things like a letter that says, I sent you some new socks and underwear because it's so cold in England, which just kind of delights me because in some ways it's so incredibly normal. And I just love that it's a piece of history that reminds us that like people in history were just they were involved in like these big like war and conquest things, but also they were kind of doing these everyday things like hosting birthday parties and like knitting people socks and sending them socks because it was cold in Britain. And I think um, what I like about Black Earth is that it really explores what it means to be a person existing in times of military and cultural conflict and transition. Like the Romans have left, there's sort of this power struggle for who's going to be the new dominant group in England at the time. But also Isla and Blue are just sort of trying to survive and carve out their own community and their own lives. So the Vindolin tablets just remind me of that because some of them are about like big Roman imperial conquest things that were like shaping the country and the Roman Empire. And then some of them are like kind of smaller everyday things like 
hosting a birthday party soon. So anyway, um, they're not exactly post-Rome Britain because they're strictly from when uh, there were like Roman garrisons in Britain, but I just think they're a really interesting piece of history. And I personally like how two of the most recent books I've read that were set in post-Rome Britain, which is this uh, book we're talking about and also Spear by Nicola Griffith, which is a fantastic um, Arthurian retelling set in the same time. Anyway, both of them feature characters who were descended from Roman soldiers who served in Britain um, as kind of a way to explore like the like further impact that Roman imperialism had on Britain even when they were gone. So, okay, history nerding out. We can go back to the book now. <laughs> this has been Lulu's little nerd corner. I agree though. I'm also not as much of an expert on the Vinderlanda tablets as you are, but I really liked that this book is kind of just about people living their lives in this time period and just kind of like trying to carve out a place for themselves and somewhere they can feel safe and have a community. It's not really like an epic story about like, I want to become a warlord or defeat the Saxons or become queen or like political scheming. It's just about two sisters who are trying to find somewhere where they can have a bit of peace and settle down and a community that will accept them. And it's really nice that they are able to find this community within the ruins of London, which is a place that many characters in the book kind of regard as haunted or evil or spooky, but it's really a place that these women are able to find a community and somewhere that they can kind of hide from the rest of the world and be themselves. I also just really liked, as Lulu mentioned, that Isla is a blacksmith because I feel like swords are very important in historical fiction and fantasy and they're often like of symbolic importance or they have cool names or they have magic, but I don't think there's always a lot of attention paid to the characters who make them. So I really liked how much of the book is about like Isla like physically making these swords about the techniques she learned from her father that he learned from his father that had been preserved throughout time uh, and their whole family like knows this knowledge even though they've like traveled so many different places and their culture has changed so much and I just really liked the idea of this knowledge being like passed on and on from family member to family member even in this time of like great chaos and change and also there's just like some cool descriptions of swords as well but I just thought it was a really cool idea to make one of the characters a blacksmith in this time kind of known for like chaos and war and she is a character who makes swords but she's also somebody who just kind of wants to settle down and have a peaceful life somewhere where people won't bother her. Mm -hmm. And also there are other things that blacksmiths make other than swords and that's explored a little bit. Also just some cool moments in which they're like scavenging for old metal from Roman settlements and the way that these characters exist in kind of the ruins of the Roman political and power structure that was around even before they were born is super interesting. And in some ways it's a bit of a weird novel to read because the characters themselves don't necessarily use like the same historical terms that we would. Like they don't say, oh, the Romans were here and they ruled Britain. They call the Romans the Sun Kings, which if you're not familiar with the time period might be a little bit confusing, but I found it interesting because this is a time period in which we don't know a lot about it. And there probably weren't a ton of like accurate historical sources being like, ah, oh, so the Romans came from here and they conquered you this year and they stayed and then they left because of these factors back in the Mediterranean. So I think the fact that the characters or almost kind of like mythologize the Romans as like these long ago powers who were here and then left and we don't exactly know why adds to the kind of mythological feel of the book, but also feels accurate to characters who are living in a world that is also shaped by forces they don't entirely understand. Like they certainly don't know what was going on at the heart of the Roman empire to cause the um, soldiers and imperial forces to withdraw, but it's still something that has really shaped their lives. So just the way that it's about people sort of trying to understand the history that they live among, but maybe it's not entirely accurate to the terms that we would have understood today, also felt accurate because like, I'm sure there'll people who be people in the future who understand the world that we live in in completely different terms. 
Yeah, when I started reading the book and it started talking about the Sun Kings, I was like, what? Huh? Are we suddenly talking about Versailles? What's happening here? I know that's the wrong time period. And then I was like, oh, wait, they call them the Sun Kings because they come from, you know, the direction of the sun. Okay, I see. And, like, it's true that they wouldn't call them the Romans and be like, well, the Romans withdrew because of, like, X, Y, and Z political conflicts in the Mediterranean. Like, they have no idea why that would happen. So it was kind of interesting to see how these characters mythologize their own history because, like, we in our current time period mythologize that portion of history but not in the same way that characters do and it was just kind of interesting to see like what would people in that part of the time in that world think of and like what would they think of the roman ruins like what did they believe happened there or what, what did they think people who made them were like and it was just kind of interesting to see these characters like creeping around these ruins trying to imagine like what people made them and why they left and who they were because that's something we still do today also, the author's note in this book is so great. I'm a huge nerd. I love reading author's notes and also acknowledgements. And when I got to the moment in which the brooch was dropped into the Roman bathhouse, I was like, yeah, score! It's the brooch in the bathhouse! Let's go! It was like the historical fiction equivalent of when like a guy turns up in a Marvel movie and it's like a cameo or something else you're supposed to know about. And I was like, I see what you're doing there. Yeah, or like in a murder mystery when like the killer is finally revealed or like in a book when they drop the title and you're like, oh, I see. You're like, oh my God, it's the brooch. And yeah, I don't know. It was just as a history nerd and someone who like thinks this time period is really fascinating. I thought it was really cool the way that the whole novel can kind of be drawn back to this one little artifact. We don't really know how it got there or who the person was who dropped it, but the whole book is sort of imagining like, who was this woman living in this time period? Who was the Saxon woman? Where did she get the brooch from? Why was she in the ruins of London? And I don't know, it was just, it was so interesting and history is so fascinating. And I love the way that this book worked with history. I feel like ultimately I really enjoyed this book because I feel like it did a really good job of kind of conveying the confusion of this time period. It feels a lot like a world in which characters are kind of like being controlled and like sent around by forces they don't really understand and they don't really know what happened to the past of their world or like what caused the world that they live in now and they're kind of clinging on to this half forgotten past that they don't really know about or really understand but they know that there was something else there once something that was like really powerful and is now gone and they're, it feels like they're trying to understand it but they don't really have the tools to and I really liked that because like that's kind of what we're also trying to do we don't under really understand what this time period was like so we're just kind of trying to understand it like these characters did but like from the vintage point of like over a thousand years later. It feels almost post-apocalyptic, the way that they're living in the physical ruins of a society that had such great influence over Britain and is now just completely gone. Like, I don't know, there's so many dystopian sci-fi after the apocalypse things and people are like wandering around a former city and you see something you're like, oh my god, that used to be the Statue of Liberty or something, you know? And it's just sort of interesting to see that feeling turn up in a historical fiction book, but it just kind of reminds you that like the world sort of goes in waves and like there have been so many powers that have been great and fallen. And this book is sort of about living in the shadow of a fallen power while you try to figure out what it means to carve out a life in a place that it seems like, I don't know, kind of empty and powerless, but it's just such an interesting book. I love brooches. I love history. It's a good time. It is a good time. And we had a good time with this book, I think. I think now we're going to move on to the second book we're discussing, which is Here Lies Arthur by Philip Reeve, which is also a historical fiction book that has very little actual magic or like mythology, but is nonetheless pretty much centered in this time period. 
It is basically a book about the possible historical origins of the King Arthur mythos and tries to imagine what King Arthur might actually have been like in this time period and what kind of person may have given rise to these like grand myths and like whether or not he lived up to them or perhaps he didn't really live up to them. So this book follows Gwenna, a young girl and later young woman who is taken in by Marthen, a bard and storyteller who's kind of like the Merlin figure in this story. And Marthen basically follows around the warlord Arthur and tells tales and makes alliances and performs magic tricks in order to gain support for his cause. And so over the course of her childhood and adolescence traveling with Arthur and Marthen, Gwenna kind of sees Arthur become a more and more influential figure, as well as seeing the origins of the stories that Marthen is telling that would eventually turn him into a mythic figure, while also coming to understand that Arthur himself is very much not a mythic figure and is in fact a deeply flawed man who has perhaps taken advantage of the fractured state of the world in order to just gain as much possible power for himself as he can. I actually had read this book before. I read it about a million times as a kid because there was a copy at my middle school library and I was a huge fan of it. I was a big King Arthur kid as well and I just really loved this book. And after studying some medieval history about post-Rome Britain and this time period and also the origins of literature about King Arthur in college, I decided to reread this book and kind of see like does it hold up? Does it actually feel like it did a good job imagining King Arthur? And you know, I think it does. I think it does feel like the author did his research and he sat down and thought like what kind of person would King Arthur have been and what kind of stories would people have told that later, that later led to the ones that we know today? And I think it did a really good job imagining that. I also read this book a ton. It was very fun revisiting it. I had probably not read it for at least a decade and I was kind of fuzzy on what actually happened in it. But like you, I had also studied kind of King Arthur and in literature and also that era of medieval history in college. And I was like, it'll be fun to revisit this book and see if it holds up. And, you know, I feel like Philip Reeve, he did his research for this book. Characters have the authentic Welsh names that they would have had during this time period. A lot of Arthurian names are kind of like very based off of Welsh names um, in history. And it's very grounded in like King Arthur is sort of this brutal warlord character who's fighting off the Saxons and he's certainly a good general, but he's not really the like noble, golden hearted, true king that you might find in a lot of Arthurian fiction nowadays. Also, <laughs> Merlin is like a schemey kind of bard storyteller character, which I loved. He actually meets Gwynna because she's sort of a young orphan girl who belongs to um, a settlement that Arthur's uh, men basically raid and torch and she runs away and she finds Marthen and Marthen is like, hey, you're really good at swimming. I want to pull a little con where I have you hand this guy a sword out of a lake and everyone would be like, wow, the old pagan gods love him. Because this is a story that is also very much about the conflict between pagan religion and Christian religion. And Marthen is sort of trying to um, spin Arthur into a figure who is beloved both by Christians and non-Christians. So he has Gwina basically become the lady of the lake. Um, in this story, there is like no actual magic. It's all kind of Marthen spinning these tales of the old gods. Um, Gwina herself also doesn't believe in gods, but like there's religious and cultural power of belief. There's no like actual gods descending down from the heavens and cursing people or whatever. But Marthen essentially enlists Gwina to scam people into thinking that Arthur is beloved by the pagan gods by making her into the Lady of the Lake. And after that, she sort of becomes his accomplice slash apprentice slash maybe even adopted child over the years as Martha continues to like sort of follow Arthur around as his star rises. 
This book basically kind of retells slash shows the origins of famous Arthurian stories like the Lady of the Lake, the affair between Lancelot and Guinevere, Arthur's final battle with Mordred, all that kind of stuff, and kind of tries to figure out what these stories may actually have been like and how they eventually got spun out into like the vast grand magical stories that we know today. It has a really, it has a lot of interesting stuff to say about the power of stories and how they glorify people and the way that stories can take on a life of their own in both good and bad ways because as Gwynna grows up and she sees Marthen continually spinning these stories about Arthur, she begins to wonder, does Arthur deserve these stories? Is he somebody who really deserves to be glorified like this? Is he someone who even deserves to be a ruler or have this power? And she kind of comes to realize that Marthen's stories have, to have taken on a life of their own and he can't really take them back. And no matter who he was at the beginning of this journey, Arthur is becoming a mythological figure. And I just really love stories about the power of stories. They're not just like, stories are so cool. They can get you through hard times. I also love when they're like, stories can be dangerous and they can do things you didn't intend and they can spiral out and become far more powerful than their original teller and I think this does a really good job of showing that because by the end of the book Gwynna's like well maybe Arthur doesn't deserve the power that he's gotten from these stories but there isn't much I can do about it because he is being mythologized as this king as we speak and as I see it happen but there isn't anything I can do about it. If you're familiar with Arthurian lore even vaguely, there's a lot of stories in this you'll recognize. Like you said, um, there kind of hits on all of the major beats like Lancelot's affair with Guinevere and stuff like that. Characters have slightly different names. Like instead of Guinevere, we have Guinhofar, which is the Welsh version. Instead of Mordred, we have Madrat. Instead of Merlin, we have Marthen. Instead of Lancelot, we have Bedwer. Well, K is still K, but it's spelled slightly differently. Anyway, you get the gist. But it's, it's sort of less about like, these are how the stories went down actually. Um, imagining like how they would have mapped onto history. It's sort of more about how Marthen takes events that happens and spins them out into stories that really uphold Arthur. Arthur in this book pretty much sucks as a person. He's not a hero. He's not a noble guy. He doesn't have this code of chivalry. He's not chosen by the gods or by England. He's just kind of like a big bully with a sword and a lot of soldiers at his command. And also he has Marthen on his side. And Marthen is really good at spinning stories that make Arthur into a good man, a chosen hero, the righteous leader of the British people, that kind of thing. But also he's not a great person in this book. For example, there's a section of the book that's about the retelling of the affair between Lancelot and Guinevere. And in this book, it's just basically a horrible tragedy about two people who happen to fall in love and then some really awful stuff happens to them directly caused by Arthur. And as this happens, Marthen is like, well, okay, how do I spin this to make Arthur look good? And meanwhile, like some people suffered and died. And this is a part where Gwyneth is like, he really is just trying to turn real awful tragedy into stories. And I just found that super interesting. Also, one thing that really stood out to me when I was rereading this book many years after I first read it is how many interesting things it does with gender. So Gwynna uh, spends a significant portion of her childhood disguised as a boy because after Marthen uses her to be the Lady of the Lake, he's like, it would be pretty suspicious if I just turned up with this coincidentally young girl who people might recognize from the time that she swam around in a lake and gave a guy a sword. So he has Gwynna like cut her hair and dress as a boy and hang out with the boys and tell everyone that her name is Gwyn and she's sort of like just Marthen's apprentice. But then eventually she has to go back to living as a young woman because Marthen's like, listen, like I can't disguise you as a guy any longer. It's time for you to learn how to live as a woman. And she's like viscerally uncomfortable with this, not just because of like the fact that women live much more limited lives 
compared to men, like this is still a patriarchal society where women can be sort of bartered around by men. They're sort of treated as goods, um, as like sort of things to be um, married off and that kind of thing. And she really wants to be in on the action, learning about all the stories on the front of the battlefield. But also there's this aspect of Gawinna that seems like fundamentally uncomfortable with living and dressing as a woman. Um, so first of all, I was reading this book being like, Gwena trans? Is Gwena trans? Is that what's going on here? I was like, also thinking that. Honestly, when I was writing notes for this, it almost felt like weird to be like, Gwena. I'm like, this is just Gwen's book. He's just a guy living in medieval England. But also there's other interesting gender stuff in this because this book also deals with the myth of Percival. Percival, if you are not familiar with Arthurian mythology, is kind of like this young upstart knight. His mother wants him to not go off and die in battle like his older brothers and his father. So she's sort of like mother hens him. It's the story of what happens when you helicopter parent your child too much. But then of course he goes <laughs> off to court and he becomes one of Arthur's best knights and goes off on adventures. But in this one, um, it takes like almost a page out of the Achilles story and has Peridot's mother sort of disguise and raise him as a girl for a chunk of his life. And he legitimately thinks that he is a girl. Um, but then like, it's like, oh wait, my name is Peridot. I should become a knight and go off and like uphold my father's legacy. But then at the end of the story, both Gwyn and um, Gwynna slash Gwyn and Peridor slash Perry are both kind of like, man, actually, like, Arthur sucks. There's no real glory to be found in war. Maybe we should just, like, run off and become, like, a bard and stuff. And it's, like, implied that Gwyn just goes back to life living as a guy and Perry seems to go back to living as a woman. And I was like, are there trans people in this book, Philip Reeve? This reads as so trans. Like, hello, hello. I do feel like I should mention that I'm not an expert on the original, original... Percival slash Peridor stories, although I did read the poem Percival by Cotillon de Toile. But anyway, I think there is a few early versions of the story in which Peridor is in fact raised as a girl because his mother doesn't want him to go to battle and die. So that does have actually some basis in the original Arthurian myths, although I feel like it's a little bit less popular today. But I was reading this and I was like, Gwyn trans, Perry trans, trans romance? Is this gender we got going on here? And there's also some interesting stuff about how, uh, being raised as a girl, Peridor doesn't really have like the same ideas of toxic masculinity as a lot of the other men in the book. And he fights in one battle and was like, whoa, that sucks. I actually don't want to die for Arthur. And then he and Gwyn kind of peace out and leave. And I was like, good for you both. Yeah, like he is kind of a comedic figure in his naivete at times. There's a moment where he wants to go off and become a knight. So he takes like a kitchen pot and wears it as a helmet. and. Percival as a character is, I read Crédit de Trois Percival semi-recently, and a lot of it is about Percival being like incredibly naive and having to sort of grow up. But it's sort of a story about like how overt feminine influence in his life has been bad because his mother has been helicopter parenting him his whole life. And like, he has to go off and find like a male mentor who teaches him how to dress and act and interact with women in the original thing. But this one is interesting because it definitely does sort of do the like, haha, Percival is really naive and doesn't understand how to be a knight and how to interact with people. But by the end, Percival and sort of the narrative have a realization that like being a knight is actually not glorious and cool. It's just mud and blood and sweat and dirt and watching your friends die and killing for a man who would not do the same for you. Bedwer, who is Lancelot in this story, he has a really tragic end because he's terribly injured, but then sort of like, sort of feels like he has lost all purpose in his life until he becomes sort of Gwen Humara's secret lover. And then of course that ends really badly, but Peridor is sort of like, you know what? I'm gonna opt out of this being a knight thing. It actually really sucks. And it's sort of implied that he just goes back to living life as a woman. And I'm like, is there, are there trans people in this book, Philip Reeve? I didn't pick up on this as a child, but just the way that both characters kind of 
reject like the roles that they should be living in society as like a nice housewife and as a knight and are like, you know what, we're going to go off and forge our own path together as like kind of a Harper bard and that bard's companion just feels very much like they're rejecting the roles of society that they're supposed to be filling and that feels very queer to me. Yes, very queer. And it also fits into the themes of like the power of what stories imagined Arthur to be versus what he was actually like because Arthur in this book is uh, not worth dying for at all. And in fact, like the whole final battle between Arthur and Mordred, who in this version is called the Draught, is because Arthur in a fit of rage kills both Bedwer and Gwyn Hilaire, and you're like, whoa, that was a, a really bad thing that he did there. This guy actually deserves to get murdered. And so by the end of the book, it's kind of about how Arthur has died, and he died like kind of a pointless warlord death, and he killed, he brought down a lot of other people with him. And But despite the fact that he was an awful person in life, is being remembered as, as this great hero in death, that he's going to be mythologized forever. But the real version, the real Arthur, was not a good person and was not worth dying for and both Gawain and Parador realize that and just kind of like peace out and sail away from England. Also in some ways it's a story about the protagonist becoming disillusioned with Marthen who seems like this incredibly cool storyteller who can shape the world with his words but you start to see as a real flawed person who maybe made some bad decisions and has put his lot in with the wrong person and I think it's sort of a story about growing up and realizing that your heroes are maybe not who you thought they were, but that you can perhaps go out and forge a better life for yourself. But I have to say, I mean, there is like still some genuine emotion in this book. It's not all grimness and cynicism. It's about like, there are genuine loving relationships. Like there's a bit when Martha is talking to Gwyn on his deathbed and is like, you've been a good daughter and a good son. And I was like, ah, emotions. <laughs> that made me sad. And the retelling of the Lancelot and Guinevere story in this also made me quite sad because it's basically about two people who don't really feel like either of them have a place in the world because Bedwyr can no longer be a knight due to a career-ending injury and uh, Gwynhivar is kind of not really valued by Arthur as a wife because she's barren and so the two of them don't really feel like they have a place in the world and they like do temporarily find a place with each other and it's very nice but then it ends very sadly and I remember being extremely upset by it when I was 10 and then I read it again when I was 21 and I was still upset by it so you know good with emotions Philip for you. you you did that. Yes I just love the way that this book explores what the Arthurian myths could have been like if they were grounded in history and sort of the way that stories have the power to shape history was very cool and I enjoyed that. Like, there, it's not meant to be a completely historically accurate book. It's still about how there was this one really cool bard guy who gave rise to the entire myth of Arthur, which is not like actually how it happened. It was many people over many centuries, but this one's kind of like imagining if there was a real Arthur and all of the Arthurian stories originated from the same time period, what would they have been like? And it's not trying for complete historical accuracy because that would be frankly kind of boring and also <laughs> impossible to research. That is so true because especially because Lancelot was a much later addition to Arthurian mythos. Yeah. But I just love the way that it's not really about magic or noble kinship. It's just kind of about the power of words and storytelling. Yeah, basically this book is an exploration of the way that stories have the power to shape history and the way that they have a lasting impact on further mythology. I think my medieval literature professor would really approve of this book because I did take an entire course in college that was about how the mythology of Britain has shaped its history. So then I read this book and I felt intelligent because it fed into the themes that I'd been discussing in my classes. 
I know. I love when I read historical fiction books and I feel intelligent because I recognize what they're about. <laughs> That's why I actually minored in history, so I could read historical fiction and feel smart. Same though, when I was reading The Adventures of Amina of Amina Al Sarafi, I was like, aha, uh-huh, you were discussing trade routes in the Indian Ocean. I know about these. I talked about them in class. Speaking of the power of stories to shape the world, we could segue onto our third and final book for this episode, which is Sister Song by Lucy Holland. So Sister Song is a retelling of an old British folk ballad called either The Twa Sisters or The Two Sisters, or it actually has a lot of titles, but The Two Sisters is the most popular. I'm a big fan of this folk ballad because I do have a favorite folk ballad because I'm a nerd, let me live. Uh, But basically The Two Sisters is a ballad about two sisters who quarrel over a suitor that they are both in love with, leading one to push the other into a river where she drowns and then her bones are eventually found and turned into a harp that when played tells the story of of her betrayal. Yeah, it's, it's kind of gruesome. It's basically like one of the original murder ballads, but I love it. It's a really interesting story. I was trying to explain the plot of this book and therefore the plot of the folk ballad to a professor in one of my creative writing classes a couple weeks ago. And I was like, yeah, so then her corpse washes onto the shore of the river and someone sees her body and then they carve her up and they make a bone harp. And I was just like, what am I saying to this professor? <laughs> but yes, it's a retelling and it takes place in shocker, post-Rome Britain, specifically in the kingdom of Dumnonia, which was a real historical kingdom. And it's about the three children of King Cador. The first one is Riva, a healer with magic who can't seem to heal her own injuries. She was burned with fire when she was much younger and has kind of lived with like a limp and sort of a disfigured face ever since. And this is a book that is very much grounded in the real history. Um, There are sort of real historical figures, real cultural clashes and influences, real historical settings, but also there is magic that is like very tangible and a thing that the characters actually use to shape the world around them. And one example of the fact is that Riva is actually a healer who can use magic to heal people's injuries. The second character is called Keen for most of the book, but later takes on the name Constantine. And he is kind of the middle child who is accept- sort of struggling to be accepted as a son. He is what we would consider in like modern day language a trans guy. So he was assigned female at birth and most characters view him that way. But he's like internally like, no, I'm a guy. I would like to be seen as my father's son and heir. So we'll call him Constantine because I feel like that's what I'm just comfortable doing. Anyway, and the third character is Sina, who is the youngest and kind of flightiest child. And she really dreams of love and adventure and is not really as concerned with responsibility and power as her two older siblings. The three siblings happen to live in a time of upheaval because Dimnonia really fears being under attack from Saxon warriors and has also kind of begun to abandon the old traditions and belief in the magic of the land in exchange for Christianity. So this story is about political conflicts, but also very much about sort of the push-pull of Christianity and pre-Christian religions in Britain. Um, Christianity is beginning to sort of gain a foothold, but there are characters who still practice the old traditions and sort of see Christianity as infringing on that. I do feel like I should mention that there actually are three siblings mentioned in the original two sisters, except the third one does nothing in the book and it's just kind of like in the story, except the third one does nothing in the ballad and it's just kind of like they're vibing when the bone harp is played and I guess Lucy Holland was like, aha, you, what if I give you a plot line? So that is actually a thing that's in the ballad. This ballad is also kind of weird because it begins in some version saying, 
that they're the daughters of a farmer, and then by the end they're the daughters of the king. And I guess Lucy Holland was also like, how about they're just the kids of a king? If you are interested in listening to a version of this ballad, I would recommend The Two Sisters by Steel Eye Span. You can't go wrong with that. It's a real catchy chorus. Sometimes I just be like listening to it, jamming out, being like, this is sure a song about killing your sister, but it's a real bop. So if you want to like pause the episode for a few minutes and listen to that, I would recommend that. But it's a folk ballad. There's a lot of different versions. That's the one that I personally like the best. Anyway, so this like push-pull between Christianity and the old days is basically represented through the character of Gildas, who is a Christian monk who becomes an advisor of their father, King Cador, and is deeply skeptical of pagan magic such as Reba's healing abilities. Fun fact, Gildas is the name of a real 6th century monk who famously wrote the treatise On the Ruin and Conquest of Britain, which I read from one of my classes, although not in the original Latin, and it covers a lot of early English history in like a very mythologized way, kind of like... Here's what this guy says happened, but we don't really have a way to say that's actually what happened. And so I read On the Ruin and Conquest of Britain for my medieval literature class, the same semester that I read this book. And when he turned up, I was like, Gildas, what are you doing here? And then he proceeded to be awful. And I was like, go away, Gildas. It is so funny when you're reading historical fiction and real historical people turn up because sometimes you read historical fiction and it's just invented characters in a real time period. But then sometimes you get to learn whether the author has like really specific grudges against real people. Like for instance, I don't think Lucy Holland has a very high opinion of Gildas. I mean, he's okay. He wrote a treatise. I had a good time discussing it in class. Uh, he has strong opinions on Christianity, even in the treatise, though. He's kind of one of the villains of this book, I would say. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, basically, the lives of the three narrators of this book are disrupted by the arrival of Tristan, a handsome and mysterious stranger that Riva and Cine both develop feelings for, as well as the continuing unease between Christian and pagan conflicts, which becomes much stronger due to the presence of Gildas, and also the looming threat of the sacrifice. Saxons, because this book takes place at a time when the Britons and the Saxons did not get along and were not integrated and definitely did not like each other. And so the, the kind of the fear is that the Saxons will come and conquer the kingdom of Dumnonia. And so there's like a great fear of that, as well as the impending kind of conversion to Christianity of their country. So basically, this is a book that takes place in a time of great social change and turmoil, where different groups of people are fighting over the same land, where different religions are struggling to take hold and take power, and where the three characters are trying to figure out what they can do in their lives to preserve their kingdom and their family. It's also pretty heavily a fantasy book. It is grounded very much in real history and real, you know, people and cultures of that time. But also magic is real in this book and there's really no doubt about it. It's not like, oh, it's ambiguous whether that was the gods or just the natural world. Like in this book, Riva can heal people and it's magical. That kind of thing. But also it is sort of tied to ongoing like cultural and political conflicts in the country. For instance, there's sort of this old lineage to the Dumnonian royal family where the king has a special power connected to the land, which is very much based off of like old British and Celtic ideas of the king as the embodiment of the land who has this like great strong power to it. But because people are converting to Christianity and the royal family is sort of beginning to leave behind their pre-Christian beliefs and traditions, people see the magic in the land and the king's connection to the land as weakening. And it was something that could have been used to kind of ward off the Saxons, like, you know, calling up a storm um, or something like that, or calling up an army of the dead against the Saxons. But because Christianity is sort of got a stronghold in the kingdom and the king is turning away from these old traditions, the old powers are fading along with the old beliefs. So it like literalizes this sort of cultural change by having it also be represented through magic, which I found super cool because I am like really interested in 
pre-Christian religions and Christian religions and like how they interacted in early Ireland and Britain. So in this story, like magic is very much real and it's kind of a tool characters use, but it's also sort of a metaphor for the way that like old traditions are being forgotten. Also, speaking of magic, there's a really interesting character in this book in the form of Maury slash Marthen, a gender fluid wizard who as a man teaches Constantine how to fight and as a woman teaches Riva magic. I have big respect for this book for looking at the two forms of elderly magic mentors being like, what if one person was both and they were gender fluid? I just thought that was neat. I think we're going to get into some real spoilers now, but also like this is a retelling of a well-known folk ballad, so it's, I feel like it's a bit of a foregone conclusion that someone's going to fall into a river and get turned into a bone harp. But in case you really don't want to hear about the specifics of how someone falls into a river and is turned into a bone harp, you can turn back now. Zena and Riva become extremely jealous of each other over Tristan's affections, but Riva is the only one who actually has a relationship with him. Zena is kind of like the younger sister who's like incredibly jealous of uh, Riva, but Tristan does not actually show her a second glance. Constantine is sort of too busy working out his gender identity and trying to get people to respect him as a man and as the king's son, and also sort of learning more about the king and land magic, and also having his own little romance to really pay attention to what's going on with Tristan, to which I say, good job, Constantine. Don't get entangled in the love triangle with your siblings. It will only end badly, as this book proves. Yes, our notes specifically say Constantine is too busy being trans and getting a girlfriend to pay attention to Tristan. Good job. Which is true. Yeah, I actually really loved Constantine's plotline in this because I find the whole sort of king is land understanding of power and magic really interesting. And also, he's sort of the original element of this novel in that, like, Cena and Riva's plotline pretty much follows the actual ballad, but it's the two sisters, not the two sisters and their brother. So um, Lucy Holland gets to kind of make up what Constantine's plotline is about. And I think it's pretty chill that she was like, what if he was just a trans wizard? I'm like, that is so true. All books should have trans wizards in them. In this book, things kind of come to a head between Gildas and Riva, and Gildas tries to have her tried as a witch. This book is uh, not super fond of Christian priests, to be honest, but you know what, that's fair. So for a book that's a retelling of the two sisters, Sister Song actually takes a pretty long time to get to the events of the ballad. A lot of the book is about the conflict between pagan religions and Christian religions and Gildas and Riva and the two of them trying to figure out like how their kingdom should go in the future and like is it going to become Christian? Is it going to become pagan? But eventually it does get to the events of the ballad after spending a lot of time exploring the historical context of the time period. And so eventually Sina and Riva have an argument about Tristan that leads to Riva accidentally pushing her sister off a waterfall. The death in this book is somewhat more accidental than it's portrayed in the ballad and the ballad's like and then she pushed her sister and this one's like she kind of like tripped by accident kind of but you know it's still a murder. Also, I think Holland really fleshes out the conflict between the sisters in this. It's not just, I want your boyfriend and I'm jealous, um, which is sort of how the original ballad goes down. It's also tied into Reba's disability and how she always feels like she's been seen as kind of undesirable and unwanted and she really doesn't see herself having a future, especially like a marriage or any kind of romance. And the way that Sina um, is jealous of Riva as kind of the older sister getting all the attention, but also the way that certain things are related to like Saxons and political conflicts. Uh, Lucy Holland kind of ties this all together. It's not just a conflict of like romance and jealousy, but also kind of the way that larger conflicts between the characters end up sort of being boiling over because of this romantic conflict. 
Also in this book, Marthen slash Mori is the one who ends up making the bone harp out of Sina that tells the song how she died. And if I remember correctly, it's been a little while since I read this book, Sina's song that she sings eventually when Marthen plays the harp is actually different from the original ballad, and it's really good. So I have a lot of respect for Lucy Holland for writing original lyrics that still rhymed and fit into the story while also reading like an actual folk ballad. I have to say, at a certain point when I was reading this book, I was like, okay, I've been reading a long time, and there's no bone harp. When are we going to get into the bone harp, folks? I want the bone harp. Let's go. But once we got to the bone harp, I was like, oh, this is really good. Like, it was gruesome. It was upsetting. But also, I think all the buildup was really worth it because, like, you know, it's pretty gross to consider making a harp out of someone's bones. How would you even think about that? Why, who sees a corpse and, like, you know what? That would make a great musical instrument. Pretty weird person. But in this one, the way that it kind of ties back to the magic that characters have been using throughout the book and the way that the body itself can be an embodiment of magic and the past and history is all sort of tied together. And like, it's really gruesome, but also really powerful and effective. And I mean, if you're gonna, if you're gonna write a retelling of the two sisters, you really have to, at a certain point, lean into the gruesomeness of making a bone harp. And I was like, this is a little slow. When are we getting to the bone harp and the magic and the murder? But I think once the book did get around to that, I was like, oh yeah, let's go. We got the bone harp. Let's go. We got the bone harp. The wizard is playing the harp. Everyone, it's all good. The wizard's playing the harp. That was basically my reaction as well. Yeah, so uh, further spoilers to this book, because I think it's interesting to talk about. It turns out that the mysterious Tristan, who just kind of appeared from nowhere and is hot and mysterious, and that's, that's definitely not at all suspicious at all. So he turns out to be the son of the Saxon king, who is like kind of a looming threat throughout this book, who never actually turns up on page. But there's kind of this knowledge that the Saxons are at the borders of Dumnonia and they're going to invade and there's like a fear they'll take over. And so it turns out that Tristan has been sent by his father in order to infiltrate the kingdom and help his father take it down, which, uh, oops, oh dear, I wonder why nobody was suspicious of the hot mysterious guy who turned up. But anyway, so it turns out that he does end up helping them attack Dumnonia, and rather than killing everyone there, he actually brings the pregnant Reva back to his father's kingdom to be his queen, to which I say, hey, would you look at that? It's the historical integration of various tribes in England. Constantine ends up becoming the king of Dumnonia, um, and like we said, going by a different name and sort of being accepted as a man and his father's heir. And this makes him not only a character in this book, but also the sort of semi-mythical, semi-historical figure of King Constantine of Dumnonia, who is really briefly mentioned in Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain as being a successor to King Arthur. History of the Kings of Britain is a very mythologized history of Britain. At one point it's like, and then King Arthur went and fought some giants. And I was like, sure, Betty, I'm sure he did. That definitely happened. It's sort of like piecing together like a lot of different pieces of history and attempt to make like one comprehensive history of Britain, which is not like, you know, probably super accurate to what happened, but is a good source if you want to know about what people thought had happened. My favorite part of history of the Kings of Britain is actually not the text itself. It's that Geoffrey of Monmouth claimed to have just found the manuscript lying around somewhere and translated, but he definitely didn't write it, you guys. It's real. He just found it somewhere. So anyway, Constantine is a character who's mentioned in that because it turns out that Constantine does have a pretty happy ending. This is obviously a time period where people don't have like as much of an understanding of like modern ideas of queer and trans identities, but like the patrilineal divine monarchy magic does accept him as his father's heir. So that's cool. The, the magic is trans inclusive and he ends up being seen as a man and a king and a prince and a general by his people, 
So ultimately, like, there are moments in which this character, like, faces a lot of pushback for uh, expressing his gender identity, but, like, he does ultimately have a pretty happy ending. Diversity win! The Divine Reign of Kings is trans-inclusive! <laughs> Basically. But it is actually quite, it's a quite a good ending. Also, Constantine has a romance with somebody called Gwen, and I was like, is this a further King Arthur reference? And it didn't really elaborate on that, but I like to think so. I actually also read History of the Kings of Britain, but unfortunately I was out sick the day that my medieval literature class discussed the section of the book that mentions Constantine. Constantine. It's a very brief bit. It's basically like, and then King Arthur died, and then King Constantine of Dumonia took over for a bit, but that's kind of it. But like, he is an actual figure who's mentioned in old historical texts, such as that one. So it was kind of fun to get to the end and be like, hey, actually, you've been a canon character all along. Good for you. It's sort of a mashup of a folk ballad retelling and real history. And I think you can really read it without knowing a ton about this time period or even anything about the folk ballad. But it definitely was fun for us to read being familiar with that time period because you kept being like, oh, I recognize that. Or I know that conflict or I know that character. I, I read that text you're clearly drawing on. So that was really fun. Yeah, did you know that being a history nerd and being a literature nerd are in fact two deeply intertwined interests? Whoa, who would have guessed? I just like also the way that these three books, to varying degrees, include sort of queer and trans identities in medieval England, I think you can really say it's up for debate whether Gwyn and Perry are meant to be like trans or gender non-conforming in Here Lies Arthur. In some ways, it's it could be just like stock girl disguise herself as a boy for plot contrivances kind of thing. But I think the fact that Gwyn goes back to being like the male Harper Bard at the end, that sort of seems like his version of a happy ending, which makes me kind of read that character as not being a cisgender woman personally. Oh, very much so, yeah. Like, I don't know if that's what Philip Reeve intended, but reading this book, like, as an adult who is much more familiar with, like, trans and gender non-conforming identities in the present, but also in the past, I was like, to me, this seems like a character who is at his happiest and most fulfilled when he is not living by expected gender norms. So whether or not Philip Reeve intended the protagonist of Here Lies Arthur to be, like, a character who is trans, I was kind of like, listen, his happy ending is living as a man when that is not the identity other people want him to live as. So I'm like, in my mind, that's pretty trans. But where was I going with this? Oh yes, I really liked that Dark Earth um, and Sister Song, and to an extent, no matter how intentional it was, Here Lies Arthur are all like medieval books that show there like have always been queer and trans people in history, especially like in these sort of semi-mythical time periods, like everyone really knows who King Arthur is. So I just kind of like that this book explores like the diversity in gender, in linguistics, in cultural backgrounds, in sexuality of the time period. Like you have characters who um, are of like different linguistic and cultural backgrounds and characters of different genders and sexualities. And I feel like like King Arthur is like the matter of Britain can be such a like, and there's this cool white guy from history who will come back and save us all. So I really like that these are books that feel like they are grounded in like the real history of Britain, which because it's a real country is one of like, diversity and of like different groups interacting and coming together and that like it's not like one homogenous history where everyone always spoke the same language and acted the same way. They're to me seem like they're really books that acknowledge the diversity in real English history and I liked that. Also, I will say, actual medieval literature is pretty queer. I don't know about you guys, but I read Sir Gwyn and the Great Knight and I was like, whoa, this is extremely bisexual. Yeah, I mean, what what's going on in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, huh? I don't know, but it's definitely not straight. 
Okay, that's probably the topic of another episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, perhaps so. I have a lot of thoughts on Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, but now is perhaps not the time for them. For now, I'll just say that I find King Arthur really interesting, and I love reading like a good King Arthur story where there's like magic and Morgan Le Fay and Merlin is a wise old wizard, but it can also just be really interesting to read about the time period in which these stories first emerge and kind of try to think about like why did this time period need the idea of a hero? Why did people latch onto it? Why are we so fascinated by a period of time that we know nothing about? And I think all three of these books did a really good job of imagining with varying degrees of fantasy and varying degrees of reality what this time period may actually have been like and what the stories and peoples of that time period could have possibly been like. Exactly. I mean, this time period has produced stories that are really powerfully still present in the conscious. Like, hello, they made a big blockbuster movie about King Arthur like five years ago. King Arthur as a cultural figure is not going away anytime soon. But also, I think to hold King Arthur up as this like generic mythological figure is not interesting to me. It's much more interesting to go back to the past that produced this like incredibly popular character who is often used as like a political and cultural figure like the Tudors were really big in King Arthur because they wanted to be like hey guys so we have this ancestor who was like a really important British king so that makes us really legit like King Arthur is not just a story he's also kind of like a political and cultural tool and I like that this, these three books in different ways and that was probably not the intention of the author they kind of go back to real history and like peel away the layers of myth and legend and rewriting to actually imagine what these time periods would have been like, what the people would have loved and lived and talked, what they believed, what it was like to live in a world that had been so greatly influenced by Rome, but was now sort of trying to figure out its own cultural and political and military identity. So I just found it super interesting. And I love that this is like a trend in literature. So we should all keep publishing more books about post Rome Britain so I can keep reading them. Ultimately, I think you can enjoy a good kind of surface level story about King Arthur full of magic and heroism where Arthur is a character to be admired, but also sometimes it's kind of interesting to be like, what if King Arthur just really sucked? That seems like a pretty depressing note to end it on. So we'll just say that I like thinking that a random piece of jewelry that I lost a really long time ago could become the inspiration for someone's novel several hundred years down the road. Someday somebody is going to find the D20 earrings that I wear to my, to my Dungeons and Dragons sessions and they're going to be utterly baffled by them and they're going to be in a museum and the aliens are going to think they're really cool. Maybe so. And with that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you'd like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can follow us online. We have a website, neverthetwinsshallmeet.com. We're on Instagram at neverthetwinsshallmeet. We're on Twitter, however long that lasts, at NeverTwinsCast. And we are also on Tumblr at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet.tumblr.com. If you've enjoyed this episode or others, please feel free to leave us a review or a rating. Thanks for listening!